If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 24. And the title of our message this morning is Called to Freedom. Called to Freedom. But before I get into that, I need to do a little bit of house cleaning. I know pastor appreciation is over. That month is done with. But I'd never got an opportunity to tell each and every one of you how grateful, how thankful myself and my family are for all of your generosity, all of your kind words, all of your encouragement. I will tell you this. Nobody can tell me that this church is not filled with encouragers that this church is not filled with people who love Jesus because that love has been shown. It's not just been talked about. I've seen that love. I've experienced that love. So thank you before I get emotional, before I even get started. But you know that's me, right? I'm sensitive. So anyway, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 24. I'm going to give us a brief recap of what we covered last week just to kind of catch us up before we get going. So Paul starts off in verse 1 of chapter 5, reminding us that Christ has set us free for the sake of freedom or being truly free. He's telling us that God has freed us from the bondage of the law. So to stand firm in that freedom and resist anyone or anything that would seek to put you back in chains. Paul was saying this in regards to circumcision, yet the implications go far beyond circumcision. Think about this. Don't we have that tendency to want to go back into bondage? We've got so many examples, even if we just look briefly at Scripture. Think about the Israelites being freed from Egypt. And what did the Bible say? They longed for the leaks of Egypt, but they forgot that they were making bricks without straw the other day. Like, that's how foolish we can be. Harriet Tubman, you know, if you know who she is, she led the Underground Railroad freeing slaves and... Oftentimes when she would be doing this work, the slaves would get cold feet when it was time to go to freedom. They would start the journey to freedom, but they wouldn't want to finish the journey to freedom. And so what do you think Harriet Tubman would do? Well, if those guys or ladies were allowed to go back, they would expose the rest of the group. So she couldn't have that. So instead, she pulled out her pistol and pointed it at their head and said, freedom or death? Everybody made it to Maryland. (laughs) They made it. So, but that is our tendency, right? Freedom is right there in our grasp. It's so close, but yet our flesh longs to go back under the bondage that we have been set free from. Paul speaks strongly in verse 2 of chapter 5 through 6 about the danger of going back under the bondage of the law through circumcision. He tells us in essence that to mix law and grace cuts us off from Christ. If you want to be justified by the law, Paul says, fine, here's the standard for those who would choose law over grace. Keep all of the laws then. Then Paul, knowing that people have a tendency to go to one extreme or the other, he informs both the legalist and the liberalist that whether you are circumcised or not circumcised, it makes no difference. They're both worthless. What matters, he says, is faith. Working through love, Paul leaves no room for self-righteousness here. Then in verses 7 to 9, we switch gears a bit. He says to them, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul is saying, don't allow false teachers and legalistic people to put you back in bondage. He tells them that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, meaning that to add anything to the gospel that was first delivered is to corrupt the gospel message. Finally, in verses 10 through 12, Paul expresses his confidence in the Lord regarding the Galatians. He believes that they'll awaken to the truth and not shipwreck their faith. And that those who are troubling them, the false teachers, would receive the penalty. Paul says, if if this was the message that I delivered to you, then I wouldn't be getting persecuted. Because there's no power in a message that says you need to add something to the gospel in order to have right relationship with God. Paul is so zealous about this truth that he says, instead of just snipping the foreskin, why don't you just cut it all the way off? This was actually a reference to Deuteronomy 23.1 that says, 
No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So we might see that as a small thing, but it was in addition to the gospel. And so anything additional to the gospel is no small thing. And so Paul uses the type of language that is necessary at that time. Let's read Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 24. Galatians 5, 13 through 24. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for the conviction that it brings in my own life. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for these words that you say here in Galatians, Lord. Father, we invite you this morning to speak to our hearts, Father. Let us, Father, be in tune with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit this morning, Father, as we listen to your word be proclaimed. Father, may it hit the target. May the seeds be planted and grow up into a fully grown, mature plant. Lord God, we thank you that we have the privilege of reading and holding your written word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are prone to go to extremes. One believer interprets liberty as license and thinks he can do whatever he wants to do. Another believer seeing this error goes to an opposite extreme and imposes law on everybody. Somewhere between license on the one hand and legalism on the other hand is true Christian liberty. That's Warren Wearsby. Throughout the book of Galatians, we see the tension that exists between these two extremes. Essentially, Paul was consistently speaking to two groups of people. The legalist, who fears that without the law to keep people in check, that things will fall into anarchy. And the liberalist, who would abuse the grace of God as if it were a license to sin. Today, as we dive into Galatians chapter 5, our focus is on what it really means to be called to freedom. This isn't just about the freedom to do what we want, but the freedom to live as God wants us to live. First, we'll talk about the purpose of freedom in verses 13 through 15. We're going to see how our freedom isn't for selfishness, but for serving and loving each other. That's what God really frees us for. Then in my next point, walking by the spirit overcomes the flesh in verses 16 through 18, we'll be looking at how living by the spirit helps us overcome our selfish desires. It's not about our power, but about the power of the spirit in us. Next, we're going to ask who's in control, the flesh or the spirit in verses 19 through 23. This part is about understanding who's driving our actions and decisions. Are we following our own desires or are we being led by God's spirit? Finally, we'll explore the crucified life in verse 24. This is about really giving ourselves to God, laying down our old ways and living a new life in Christ. 
as we go through these points, let's open our hearts to what God is saying to us about freedom this morning. It's not just freedom from something, but freedom for something. To love, to serve, and to truly live the way God wants us to live. So point number one, the purpose of freedom, verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. All through Galatians, Paul has told us that being a Christian means living in freedom. And he reiterates it again in verse 13. When looking at the Greek here, Paul is saying, you were invited or summoned to be free. In other words, when you became a believer, you moved from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life and freedom. Paul, being wise as he was, and of course being directed by the power of the Holy Spirit, he knew that this type of radical freedom in Christ might lead some to believe and or fear that this new freedom was something that could be used selfishly as some sort of license to sin. And of course, that option is always present. This is what is often referred to as cheap grace. Yet we know that the grace that we have received is of infinite value because the blood of the lamb was shed in order that we might walk in that grace. So we dare not take it as cheap. So Paul gives warning in the second half of verse 13 when he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Listen to what one commentator says about the word opportunity that's used in this verse. This term was applied in military language to a base of operations and generally to any starting point for action. We are tempted to use our liberty in Jesus as a base of operations for selfish sin. Mm, This is true, isn't it? I was actually talking to my wife about this last night. Um, my natural tendency, just who Roman is by nature, my natural tendency or knee-jerk reaction is usually negative. And anybody who knows me very closely would know that this is true. And by, what I mean by that is my wife could say, hey, babe, could you rub my feet? And my response is going to be, no, I don't want to rub your feet. Why don't you rub my feet? Even though your hands ain't strong enough to do it, right? But I'd still appreciate the gesture. Anyway, but, but this is my natural tendency. I, I, there's that opportunity right there every time to choose the flesh or to choose to love and serve by the Spirit. Yeah, I end up rubbing the feet eventually, but my flesh always has to get a word in first. Why? <laughs> I'm tired of you. You don't need to get a word in. Anyway, Paul ends the verse by telling us exactly how this newfound freedom in Christ should be used instead. He says, but through love, serve one another. And this is exactly the example that Christ himself set for us. Let's look at Mark 10, 45. You don't have to turn there. It says, for Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to know how to overcome the flesh? Serve somebody. That's what Paul is saying. The medicine that cures a selfish, fleshly heart is service. Why? Because the flesh is the ultimate narcissist. And the only way to defeat Narcissism is to take your eyes off of yourself. In fact, the word narcissist comes from Greek mythology, a character named Narcissus. Narcissus was basically a pretty boy who got thirsty one day and went to get a drink of water from a nearby pool. After seeing his own face in the water, he fell in love with himself. He noticed that every time he dipped his head in the water to get a drink, that his image would disappear. So guess what this genius decided to do? He decided to sit in front of the water and not drink and die of thirst because he was so obsessed with looking at himself. Wow. Sounds like some people you know, doesn't it? Doesn't it? 
This, this is, of course, an extreme illustration, but this is exactly what we look like when we are in our selfish flesh. If we want to walk in the Spirit, it is a must that we take our eyes off ourselves and through love serve one another. Isn't it miserable to have your eyes on yourself all the time? Think about it. Really, that's what sparks depression in me, is when I'm too much focused on what's wrong with Roman's life. Why aren't you here? And why aren't you having that? And why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you past that sin? And why aren't you better at that? And what it drives you crazy. But when I can get outside of myself and take my eyes off me and put it on somebody else and meet their needs, my flesh quiets down because I'm busy loving and serving and doing what God has called me to do. It's, it's not an easy thing, but it is what we must do. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is so beautiful because it's simple to understand. I didn't say it was simple to practice, but the meaning is plain. Paul reaches back to the Old Testament with a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18. The command given here calls for a selfless, sacrificial love towards others that mirrors the love one has for one's self. Mm. Listen to what Martin Luther says about this. He says, if you want to know how you ought to love your neighbor, ask yourself how much you love yourself. If you were to get in trouble or danger, you would be glad to have the love and help of all men. You do not need any book of instruction to teach you how to love your neighbor. All you have to do is look into your own heart and it will tell you how you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. As Vody says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Because I said ouch. Right? Because that's simple. That's, that's so much simplicity that it scares us. Because that's exactly it, isn't it? How many of our broken relationships and problems would not be so if we were outside of ourselves and looking and loving and serving someone else. I think so many of our problems would, would dissipate if we would take our eyes off of what we want and put it on what God wants. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What comes to mind when you hear the words bite and devour? If you were thinking wild animals, you'd be correct. Paul is warning the Galatians that a church that uses its freedom in Christ as a platform to promote selfishness will eventually be consumed or eaten up by one another like a pack of wild animals. Later on in this passage, we'll also see that Paul lists this behavior as one of the many works of the flesh that we'll talk about later. As I was thinking about this, I thought back, where did I see this in my life? And I can remember the church that I was coming up in when I first came to faith in Christ. And it was, a, it was a wonderful time in the beginning. There was so much love and so much life and so much serving and so much of all of these fruit of the Spirit. But at some point, the pastor got a vision in his head that his church would be the biggest church in Green Bay. And that vision began to inform the way that the church moved and operated. And what is that? The biggest church in Green Bay? For what? For, for your own glory? And so we had moved subtly from love and service to selfish ambition. And you want to know what happened? the very thing that Paul is saying here. We bit and we devoured one another and those doors eventually closed. I remember that in the, in the midst of pushing this vision that uh, you know when you have a vision that big, you need money that's that big, right? And so this opened up the door to letting uh, what I would call a con man come and preach to the congregation. And, and we were young, immature believers, and he was saying the right things and got many of us to get up and go to the ATM and get money to bring to him 
that we didn't even have. See, back then I was poor, poor. Right now I'm just poor. But back then I was poor, poor. And so to go to the ATM and get $100 was like, ugh. But what were we doing? We were trying to just be obedient to what we believe God wanted of us. So, of course, God, in his mercy and in his love, he covered that. However, that was, a, that was such a sting and such a hurt that even still feel it to this day, honestly. But this attitude of selfishness, our church, what we want, what we're doing, will consume us. We have to take our eyes off of just inside these walls, and we have to look out there and say, how can I love and serve this community? How do we avoid this danger that Paul warned about? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do we want to defeat our flesh? Do we want to walk in the spirit? Then we have to serve like Jesus served. That's what he's called us to. Point number two, walking by the spirit overcomes the flesh, verses 16 through 18. Before we dive into these three verses, I would like to give you a clearer picture of what Paul means when he's referring to the flesh. One commentator says the Greek word for flesh is sarks. When Paul speaks of sarks, he means all that man is and is capable of as a sinful human being apart from the unmerited intervention of God's spirit in his life. It came to mean man as a falling being whose desires even at best originate from sin and are stained by it. Thus, sarks came to be came to mean all the evil that man is and is capable of apart from the intervention of God's grace in his life. Remember what Paul says in Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, him being Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, if the old man has been crucified with Christ, then the old man is dead, right? So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that the flesh is the inner man that exists apart from the old man or the new man. The flesh or the inner man or our fallen nature has been well trained to desire sin through our habits, behaviors, the influence of the old man, the world, and Satan. In other words, Jesus saved you and made you a new creation in him, yet the flesh is still susceptible to the influence of your own sinful heart, the things you've learned in the world, as well as attacks from Satan himself. The flesh, now I don't know if this is going to land. This is Roman's analogy. It might not land. Let's see what happens. The flesh is like unrefrigerated Thanksgiving leftovers. The food was originally made to be delicious and nutritious. But after a few hours at room temperature, bacteria begins to form that will eventually make the food inedible. If you take a bite the next day, it may even still maintain much of its original flavor. Yet, ultimately, it's corrupted and headed for the trash can. The food itself is neutral. Yet, without the intervention of a refrigerator, the food will perish. Your physical body is neutral. But the fall in nature is still able to affect how you operate in the physical. So I don't know if that landed, but it was my attempt. <laughs> All right. So, but let's be clear too. Like Paul is not talking about, I'm just trying to make the distinction that he's not talking about your fingers and your toes. He's talking about something inside the nature of the person. Because if he were teaching that the flesh itself were 
corruptible and just terrible and evil, he'd be teaching Gnosticism. And we know that he taught against that. So, all right. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what does it mean to walk in the spirit? It means, first of all, that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And we know that this happens upon conversion when you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. To walk by the Spirit also means to be sensitive and open to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, it means to live a life surrendered to the influence of the Spirit, which ultimately leads to a life in which we start to look more like Jesus as we are being conformed to his image. Paul says if we walk by the Spirit, then we will not gratify or give in to the desires of the flesh. Isn't this great? It's as if God has given us the ultimate discernment tool for ourselves and for others. If you're walking by the Spirit, you'll know because what comes out of you will be Christ-like. But if you're walking in the flesh, what comes out will be fleshly. Many times we know these things, but hearing it freshly has the tendency to awaken these truths in our hearts. Even this week, I've been able to identify times where I was walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. Just like I talked about those responses to my wife. Reading this gave my heart, my mind, and my spirit, it put that right there at the forefront. And so every time I was about to say the fleshly thing, Lord, help me. Let me say the spirit-led thing. It's so evident. And Paul even says it later. The works of the flesh are evident. You can't hide them. They're clear. If you're walking in them, it's clear. You can't cover it up. For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This verse sounds a lot like something Paul said somewhere else, right? Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. What does Paul say here? He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am who would deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the war that is being waged inside of every Christian. We are constantly faced with two questions every day. Will I feed my fallen nature or will I feed my spirit man? Will I walk in the spirit or will I walk in the flesh? And we'll talk about this warfare more. But this is essentially What we're dealing with, an unbeliever doesn't have to deal with it. That war is not going on inside of them because they don't have the spirit of God. They are slaves to the sin. This is for the believer. I'm talking to you, me, believers. Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The solution, and this is not me, this is a commentator. The solution is not to pit our will against the flesh, but to surrender our will to the Holy Spirit. This verse literally means, but if you are willingly led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. The Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts so that we desire to obey him in love. Being led of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are the opposites of yielding to the desires of the flesh. Hebrews 10, 16 says, this is the covenant 
that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Yes, the Bible teaches us that upon salvation, God writes his law on our hearts. So we no longer need it written on a tablet of stone. God has replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Amen. I don't love people just because I read that I'm supposed to. I'm able to love because the Holy Spirit is constantly informing my heart to do so, even when my flesh does not want to. That is war. That is war going on inside of us. We have a choice, believer. If someone sins against you, you have the power of God living inside of you urging and nudging you to choose the spirit over the flesh. There's no such thing as the devil made me do it. You have a choice. Has anyone ever had an argument with their spouse? (laughs) That's a question I get an easy answer from. Tell the truth, shame the devil. Well, I've had many over the years. (laughs) And when I think back on many of those arguments, the key ingredient was usually selfishness. Think about it. Even think back to your own arguments, fights, disagreements, whatever. At the core, somewhere selfishness was there on somebody's part, whether both or one or the other. Uh, I don't like the way you said that. I don't like when you cut me off when I'm talking. I hate when you say I always do this or I always do that. Do you hear what's at the beginning of all of those? I, 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 self, selfishness, my way, my wrong, you wrong, me. I want my way. This is the natural bent of the flesh, and we all know it. The heart typically present in those arguments is the selfish one that wants its own way, not the humble heart that in humility counts others more significant than yourselves. I think we'd be amazed of how many of our arguments and issues would disappear if we learned to walk by the Spirit instead of the flesh. What if we really listened to one another with love and servanthood at the forefront of our minds instead of listening just to hear enough to return a smart remark or build a defense. I'm going to say that again. What if we really listen to one another with love and servanthood at the forefront of our minds, instead of listening just to hear enough to return a smart remark or build a defense? How would your relationship change if agape love was really our goal from the onset? It would be drastically different. My work would be drastically different. My friendships would be drastically different. My life in church would be drastically different if I would choose love over flesh. Point number three, who's in control? The flesh or the spirit, verses 19 through 23. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. He's basically saying that when you're in the flesh, there's no mistake in it because the works produced by the flesh are the very opposite of what the spirit produces in us. He could have just as easily said, look around and you won't have any problem knowing who's walking in the flesh. As we look at the works of the flesh, typically commentators have grouped these various sins into categories. The first category we'll discuss is the sensual sins. These include sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, as seen in verse 19. Now, where's Micah? I had a piece for my word nerds in here today. I know Micah Micah told me he's a word nerd. He did a little study down in, in the basement, and he killed it. And I was just like, man, that was great. And he just went all into some various words, and I was like, you're going to enjoy this section because it's a bunch of Greek. There he is, my man, word nerd time. Anyway, all right, let's go to Greek town. 
First, Paul points out sexual immorality or pornea, which many of you have heard before, and that's where we get the word porn, right? This word is often translated as fornication. And do you know what fornication? Fornication is any sexual activity outside of marriage. So whether that's watching pornography or living with the girlfriend or boyfriend and sleeping with them, all of those fall under this. Fornication, mm -hmm. it refers broadly to sexual relations outside of marriage, including adultery, prostitution, and other forms of illicit sexual activity. He says impurity, this is akatharsia. This term refers to moral uncleanness or impurity in a general sense, which can include various forms of sexual misdeeds or moral corruption, right? This is not necessarily sexual. This can just be morally corrupt, meaning you don't make the right decisions when it's time to make the right decision, right? When there's an opportunity to cheat, you'll take that opportunity to cheat if you are not morally upright. Sensuality or debauchery, azogia, and I'm probably saying that wrong, this word implies unrestrained or excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures, often with the connotation of public indecency or shamelessness. So these are the folks who do it right in your face. They don't care to let it all hang out and let you see their immorality in public. I think there's often a tendency to read the Bible as if the people of that time were so different than we are. Why do you think Paul felt the need to make this list? Because these were the things going on in the Roman Empire. The current United States of America, with all its open celebration of sin, is not much different than the Roman Empire that they were living in in that time. We live in a culture that constantly is telling us we live in a culture that says, God made me this way. Right? We, don't you hear that? God made me this way. Or, God's okay with my decision. He doesn't mind. Or, I feel a peace about it. Right? These are terms that we often hear, when in actuality you didn't consult God at all, which is evident because your response doesn't line up with Scripture. So stop attributing to God the things that you chose in your flesh. Paul is showing us that the Spirit will never lead us into these behaviors. One could never say that God told me to enter into fornication. One could never say that God told me to have adultery. No one can ever say that because it's completely opposite of the Spirit of God. They needed to hear that then, and we need to hear it now. If these works of the flesh are the consistent practice of your life, I'm saying that specifically for a reason. If these works of the flesh are the consistent practice of your life, it is a clear indication that you are not walking in step with the Spirit. I've heard this before, and I think it might have been Paul Washer. He said, if I was to take just a snapshot of your life at any moment and be able to portray that on a screen or show it to everybody, I might catch you in a very terrible time or season or whatever, and you would be embarrassed and shocked for those things to be known about you. But yet I could take that snapshot at another time, and I see beautiful fruit of the Spirit. What does the totality of your life look like? Not just a moment, not a slip into a sin, but this is the practice of these sins. Galatians 5.20 idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. This set of fleshly works can be categorized as the superstitious or religious sins, which include idolatry and sorcery. So idolatry, and we've talked a lot about idolatry. I actually preached on idolatry. But idolatry, as it's used here, is the worship of idols or excessive devotion to anything other than God. It comes from idolon, idol. 
or worship. So this is worshiping, bowing down to, submitting your life to anything or anyone other than God. Nothing should come before him. Nothing. Witchcraft, he says, or pharmakeia, which is drugs, originally referring to the use of drugs or potions, often in sorcery or magical practices. It came to mean any practice of magic or sorcery. So are you using tarot cards? Stop it. It's sorcery. Are you getting high? Stop it. It's sorcery. Are you reading your horoscope every day? Stop it. It's sorcery. It is. The following works of the flesh can be categorized as the social sins, which includes enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. We all know what hatred is. It's a deep and personal hostility or animosity towards others. Discord. It refers to contention, strife, or rivalry, often resulting in conflict and disunity. Jealousy. In this context, it means a resentful envy of someone else's qualities, achievements, or possessions. Mm. Fits of rage. It indicates strong, passionate emotions of anger or wrath, often to the point of losing control. Selfish ambition, originally meaning labor for hire, it came to denote seeking, self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means, and by extension, selfish or mercenary ambition. Are you all about furthering what you want in this world? You are guilty of selfish ambition. If everything you are asked to do is followed by what's in it for me, that's selfish ambition. It's not about what's in it for me. It's about how can I love and serve someone. Dissensions, are you causing division within the body? Are you spreading lies, rumors, whispers, maybe even truth, but just for the purpose of hurting or tearing down someone else? Guilty. It's covered. Factions. This word from which we get heresies, originally meant a choice or opinion, but came to refer to factions or sects, often with a connotation of division or doctrinal error. Do you have your own little clique or crew, and you guys do it better than everybody else, and you know more than everybody else, and yours is better than everybody else? Well, stop being a faction. Guilty. Galatians 5, 21, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I think we all know what those words mean. There's no need to break those down. They are plain. Lastly, at the end of verse 21, Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's something important here that I don't want us to miss. The word used in the original language is the verb prosontis, referring to habitual practice rather than isolated lapse. I'm going to say that again. This refers to habitual practice rather than isolated lapse. Paul is essentially saying that people who continually and habitually practice these sins or live in an ongoing lifestyle of sinfulness will not enter the kingdom of God. Why is this distinction important? Because if Paul simply said people who do these things can't go to heaven, then everyone in this room might as well close their Bibles and walk out. Right? The truth is, all of us here have been, will be, or are currently guilty of one or more of these sins in this list. Every Christian is susceptible to falling into any of these sins. Salvation does not take away the desire of the flesh towards sin, but it does give us the power to overcome those desires through the power of the Spirit. Next, we'll move into the fruit of the Spirit which many of us can quote off the top of our head, so it it shouldn't take long to notice that the list of the works of the flesh is much longer than the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Listen to what Spurgeon said about that. He says, 
If you will read the chapter, you will notice that the apostle has used no less than 17 words. I might almost say 18 to describe the works of the flesh. Human language is always rich in bad words because the human heart is full of the manifold evils which these words denote. There's so many of the lists because this evil heart produces it with no problem. And we know it. The times that we end up falling to the flesh instead of following the spirit, it happened in an instant, didn't it? Usually, that person cuts you off in traffic. You don't stop and go, Jesus, bless their soul. I hope that they learn to drive better. No, you bang on your horn and you get mad. Right? Now, we can downplay it or whatever we want to, but Paul is telling us that's an evident work of our flesh. And we just have to accept it. We don't have to live in it, but we have to accept that it's true. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is mentioned in the singular, not the plural. That's an important distinction for us to notice. It's not as if One Christian is given the fruit of love and another the fruit of peace and another one the fruit of joy. No, the fruit of the Spirit is a combined package. All the fruit of the Spirit is to be made manifest in the life of the Christian. Mm. Now let's look at verse 22. So the love that's spoken about in this verse is agape love. This, this word describes a selfish, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. It's the highest form of love in Scripture, often used to describe God's love. The joy that he says here, this term signifies a deep and abiding inner rejoicing, which is not affected by pain or unfavorable circumstances. It is often understood as a state of gladness or happiness that comes from knowing and serving God and peace. The peace in this context, it refers to a state of tranquility, harmony, or reconciliation with God and others. It is more than just the absence of conflict. It includes the idea of wholeness and well-being. And now patience, this word combines two words and thus implies a long-suffering or slow-to-anger quality. It's the ability to endure suffering, provocation, or other difficulties with a calm and uncomplaining demeanor. Chad's called me patient before, and I have to take that back because I'm not really patient according to this definition. Um, Yeah, the ability to endure suffering, provocation, or other difficulties with a calm and uncomplaining demeanor. Oh, Lord, you know I am a complainer. Help me, God. I don't want to be. That's the flesh, though. That's the flesh. I have an option there. I have to learn to stop complaining and start praising and being thankful because thankfulness cancels out complaint. Kindness. This term refers to a disposition of goodness, gentleness, and benevolence towards others. It encompasses gracious and considerate behavior. Goodness similar to kindness, but with a focus on moral and ethical goodness or virtue. It implies not only being good, but also doing good to others. Mm. Faithfulness, often understood as faith. It here implies fidelity, loyalty, and steadfastness. It's the quality of being trustworthy and reliable in our relationship with God and others. Ooh, these fruit are beautiful. Oh, that we would manifest all of this in our lives how we would transform Green Bay, how the world would be transformed if these fruit were exhibited regularly in our lives. Verse 23, gentleness, self-control, against such thing there is no law. Gentleness, sometimes translated as meekness. This term does not imply weakness, but rather refers to exercising God's strength under his control, demonstrating power without harshness. Now that is something. That's what Jesus was able to do. He could have crushed everyone who came at him or against him. He had that power in his hand, but he was meek 
And he endured that suffering for you and for me in obedience to his father. Why did Paul say against such things there is no law? Simple. The purpose of the law is to restrain, curb, or deter sin. But if someone is producing the fruit of the spirit, there's no need to restrain any sin. If I loved my neighbor as I loved myself, I would not violate the Ten Commandments towards them, would I? If I really loved my neighbor, I wouldn't steal for them. If I really loved my neighbor, I wouldn't talk down on them. If I really loved my neighbor, I wouldn't take their life. If I really loved my neighbor, I would obey the law. Not because I'm under the bondage of it, but because the Spirit frees me to freely walk in it and live it out in a real way. Thank you, Jesus. That's why he said it's all summed up in that one. If we could get that one thing, we want to we go to the deep things of God. No, no, take me deep in Scripture and uncover all these mysteries for me. No, get this simple one. Love your neighbor like yourself. Wow. It's so powerful, but yet so simple. Lord, teach me how to do this. Teach us how to do this. Teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And our neighbors, not just the people in this room. Our neighbors, also that man that I don't want to talk to. My neighbors, also the guy that smells like alcohol and everything else that's stumbling down the street. That's my neighbor. He told me, love him. The one coming up out of the drug house, he said, love him. The one standing on the corner with the gun, he said, love him. It's bigger than us. It takes the Holy Spirit to love like that. As long as we keep trying to love in our own strength and buck up and do better and tomorrow I'm not going to fall that way, you're going to continue to live in this place. It's his power. His power is by the power of the Spirit, not the power of I'm going to do better. Because self has nothing to offer here. This is called give the Lord control. And we're almost done here. In, the, in his observation on 1 Corinthians 2.1, J. Stuart Holden gives a beautiful illustration. He says, I have around my home a garden. In that garden and its possibilities, I have the mind of nature. For instance, I know what soil and what seed should produce this, that, and all the other kinds of flowers and fruit. I see set forth in the seedman's catalog the wonderful things that the garden should bring forth. But mark you, the flowers and the fruit are only produced by labor, by obedience to the laws of nature. When the garden has been made beautiful and fruitful, it has been made so only by intelligent cooperation with nature. Similarly, we Christians have the mind of Christ. We know full well what a Christian life should be. The fruits of the Spirit are only made evident in our lives as we wholeheartedly cooperate with the Lord in full submission and obedience to him by letting his Spirit have full control of us, body, soul, and spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You want to apply this? Surrender. Surrender. Stop trying to do it yourself. Stop trying to figure it out, work it out, manipulate it, change it, turn it. Hand it over to God. Hand it over to hand yourself over to him, hand your problems over to him, hand it all over to him and let him deal with it. Let him carry it. Let him destroy it. Let him fix it because he's able. Last point, the crucified life, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We, of course, know that our flesh has not yet been destroyed, but it is under a death sentence. The passions of the flesh have been nailed to the cross, and we are crucified with Christ in our flesh. Paul concludes that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This means that believers, through their union with Christ, have put to death their sinful nature, and desires, and now live a new life 
guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's easy to hear these words and still not believe them because of your awareness of sin that remains in your life. Paul, you're telling me that I have the power over the flesh, yet I find myself failing to walk in the Spirit far too often? To which Paul might ask, are you daily practicing sin or are you daily practicing righteousness? We must remember that as we walk with Christ, we are being sanctified or transformed into his image throughout our Christian walk until we die and are finally freed from the very presence of sin. There's never a point at which we arrive at complete sinlessness here on earth, but the goal is to walk in righteousness or walk in step with the Spirit more consistently as we are growing in him. This message led me to think about what it was like when I first came to know Jesus. There was such a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. I believe and maybe some of you do as well, that at my conversion, I was probably the best version of my Christian self than at any other time in my walk. Now, I'm not saying I haven't matured through that time. and God hasn't refined things and changed things and broke things off. But I tell you, the passion, the fire, the excitement that you have as a new believer, I, I was running from those works of the flesh, If somebody presented that, I was zealous to stamp it out. If you played a song that wasn't righteous around me, I'm going to tell you all about it. If you said a curse word around me, I'm going to tell you all about it. That, that it was just a hunger to, and a passion to anything that's not like my God. I don't want it near me. But you know, as I thought about that, it made me think that that's evidence for me that what Paul is saying is true. And this power is still at work in me. The problem is not that walking this way is impossible, because I did it. I walked in that type of consistently just, ah, right? So it's possible. That's not the problem. The problem is we often choose the pig pen over the fine meal prepared for us in our father's house. That's our tendency. <sighs> Praise the Lord. In conclusion, to the believer, this should be hopeful for you. This should increase your joy. Why? Because Paul is letting you know that it's not dependent upon you. Yes, you have to make the decision to choose the spirit over the flesh. But he's working that out in you. And he will continue that work until you leave here. And he is not going to ever at any point be satisfied until you are fixed up. That's why I laugh at people that say, don't pray for certain things. Like, don't pray for patience. Why wouldn't I pray for patience? Because if God knows I need it, he's going to give it to me anyway. If God knows you need something, he's going to align things in your life in order to get you there. Know that. Now, for my unbelievers, if there's anyone in this room who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that you don't know what freedom is. If you don't know Jesus, see, see, often out in the public square, Christians are often known for what we're against. If you ask people about, like, what are, what are Christians about? They'll probably tell you a million things that you can't do and what we're against, and they hate this and they hate these type of people. That's not true, though. Paul is telling us we are the freest people on the planet. Why don't we live like it? Let us walk in this freedom that Christ has given us. Not walking in it in order to gratify my selfish flesh, but walking in the freedom to love and serve someone else. Unbeliever today, you can accept him right today, right now. Right here. You don't have to wait till next week. You don't have to wait until you feel this strong, googly feeling. Because it's not about feelings. It's about the truth. And if God is speaking and beaming truth into your heart this morning, do not deny him. Repent. Turn from your sin. Confess that you are a sinner. And confess your need for him. Trust in Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. 
Scott, if you would come at this time. Lord, thank you so much for this message. Thank you for your word that always hits its target. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the conviction for myself. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to work in and through us all, that we would be a church, that we would be a community that is free, exhibiting freedom in Christ, loving and serving our community, and showing people that Jesus is real. Thank you, Lord. Amen.